This is a Federal News Network podcast. The state of the defense industrial base depends a lot on where you sit these days. In the boardrooms, many dib companies, especially the big ones, are seeing revenue increases, meaning contracts are flowing. But for the Pentagon, the dib itself continues to shrink. In his weekly reporter's notebook, executive editor Jason Miller covers the state of the defense industrial base and why some believe two recent reports ought to be a wake-up call. Jason joins me now. Jason, tell us more about the mixed messages and why they're that way about the state of the dib. This discussion about the defense industrial base has been ongoing, I think, Tom, for the last 10 or 15 years. Is it good? Is it bad? Is it healthy? Is it not healthy? What's going on? And if you look at the two recent reports, one from the National Defense Industrial Association, one from DOD, the alarm bells are going crazy, right? Everybody's going, look how bad things are. If you dig a little deeper and talk about the other side of the story, and I did this, of course, because I'm a journalist. That's what I do, Tom. You know that. Bloomberg government found in its fiscal 2020 report the, of, of the top 100 contractors across government that these contractors, a lot of them are DOD heavy, are doing actually quite well. Now, 2021 data is not quite ready yet, but if you just look back at 2020 data, compared it to 2019, and these are the top 10 across government, not just within DOD, but Tom, you're going to recognize a lot of these names. Lockheed Martin, for instance, was the top contractor in 2020. Yeah, I've heard of them. In- you might have heard of them. They brought in over 75, almost $76 billion in federal revenue in 2020. That's up from $43 billion in 2019. So that's a huge increase. If you look at some of the others, number two, Raytheon, number three, General Dynamics, number four, Boeing, number five, Northrop Grumman, Tom Most of those, all of those, do DOD work. So a lot of their money is coming from the Defense Department. Now, all of them but Boeing saw year-over-year increases from 2019 to 2020. I would expect in 2021 all of them to also see increases. The other thing that's interesting, Tom, that that I'll point out that is kind of the other side of the coin, is that the competition rate among DOD contracts is up, up to 52% in 2021. These are real-time numbers versus the BGov numbers, which are we're still waiting on the latest numbers. But that's 1% higher than 2020. And really, it's 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 still not as high as it has been, but still it's doing quite well. But I would tell you, it's, the alarm bells are ringing, but I'm not sure it's 100% we know why. And these two recent reports on the state of the dib, some more findings. Let me start with the DOD report. This was mandated by an executive order from the Biden administration back from July saying, hey, how do we ensure that we have a, a strong, a healthy industrial base? And what DOD found is is a lot of fewer companies are participating specifically around weapon systems. And this is a big concern. Tom, since the 1990s, the defense sector has consolidated substantially, going from 51 to five aerospace and defense prime contractors. Now, this is especially true when it comes to weapons systems. For instance, Tom, tactical missile suppliers have declined from 13 to three. Fixed wing air aircraft suppliers have declined from eight to three. The number of satellite suppliers is down by half from eight to four. 90% of all missiles come from three sources. So this is a deep concern for DOD because these weapon systems takes a long time for it to come to fruition, to be tested. And then they're worried about the price of competition. Okay. If we only have, you know, four people providing satellites for companies, what does that mean for price? And what does that mean for competition? What does it mean for supply chain? Now, I mentioned competition earlier, up to 52% of all contracts were competed. But that's, you know, that's still down from the 10 year high of 58% in 2014, yet still 2% over 2020. So 
Good news, bad news there, too. The DoD report did make five recommendations. Among them are making it easier for new companies to enter the DIB, to increase opportunities for small businesses, and to affect supply chain resiliency around things like casting and foraging, specific sector areas where the demand the demand tends to be far and few between, but there are high costs to enter the market. Now, I also heard from Wes Hallman, who's the Senior Vice President for Strategy and Policy at NDIA. He says the lack of new entrants into the DIB is actually very surprising. Between FY19 and FY20, you went from over 12,000 to just over 6,000, and we saw another drop from 6,500 down to 6,300 new entrants over the last fiscal year. So when you look at the supply chain issues, what you saw is many, many years of a dwindling supply base create more and more fragile networks, and then the pandemic really highlighting the fragility of that. And I think, uh, again, as policymakers look at this, uh, we need to look at what are the incentives and disincentives to, to, to coming into this marketplace and really adjust the, the marketplace so it's, so it's easier to enter it, easier to thrive in it, and then uh, produce some, uh, some resilience. That's Wes Hallman, the Senior Vice President for Strategy and Policy at NDIA. Now, Tom, at the same time, where we've seen an increase in the number of new entrants is through the use of other transaction agreements, other transaction authority, OTAs. The DOD report f- found that there's between February, uh, fiscal 2019 and fiscal 2020, the research and development sector has seen an increase in vendors about 9% over the past 10 years of new entrants into the marketplace, while other sectors, as I've said earlier, have seen a decline despite more money being spent. So that was another thing that this report said was maybe we need a greater use of OTAs, commercial solutions offerings, CSOs, to really help get these new entrants, these new cutting-edge technologies into the market. Now, the, the DoD report did say a lot of this was done because of COVID, but still, we're talking about over 10 years, not just one year, where we've seen a 9% increase. And the NDIA report done in conjunction with Govini, what are they saying? about the dib. They also are ringing the alarm bells saying, listen, in, in five of eight categories that we measure, the rate, the scores, if you will, fell below 70%, which them is is failing grade. The overall score also fell below 70 points, which is their lowest in, in a very long time. And that's of, of deep concern. And, and some of the areas that really dropped was supply chain, industry security, the, the rate of cyber attacks against industry is of great concern. Innovation also dropped. Production capacity and surge readiness also dropped. And I think this is just part Part of that alarm bell ringing saying, hey, we are worried about the state and the health of the of the defense industrial base because things are so challenging, because what we've seen over the past few years or so. Tom, one of the things that, that was interesting about the Vital Signs report, the, this is something that NDIA does year in and year out, is they said demand went up six points from to, to 94 from 88. Now, that was one of the highest, if not the only really big one that, that went up a fair amount because of how much money was being spent in the defense sector. At the same time, they have great concerns about some of the other areas because of the challenging economics, regulatory, acquisition, all those things you hear time and again are really having this downward pressure on the defense industrial base. And and they're very much worried that what this means more broadly than just, hey, one company or, or set of companies, but what does it mean for DOD and the, the nation to really stay secure and, and to move forward? And I think that's really what these two reports together are trying to ring those alarm bells for. What are the messages from the reports being pushed to Congress and the White House and 
How's this all playing out, I guess, in terms of policy? Part of me says these reports are very self-serving, right, Tom? I mean, you have an industry association saying, wow, we need to do more for industry. You have DOD saying, wow, don't cut our budget. We need we need more money because look, look at all the challenges we face. At the same time, I think there's also a message here about national security and near-peer competition. Tom, the Vital Signs report from NDIA, for example, is looking at the overall health of the DIB, but also highlights the areas where companies are feeling the challenges really bigger and, and, and better challenges. Retired Air Force General Herbert Hawk Carlisle is the president of NDIA, and he says the COVID pandemic has really put a finer point on many of these challenges for a lot of the companies across the DIB. The aggressive Russian military buildup on the Ukrainian border and uh, the pacing threat, the rapid military modernization efforts of the People's Republic of China remind us that our industry's work of providing superior products and services to our armed services so that they can compete and win in all domains of warfare can never be taken for granted. We owe it to the women and men that serve and defend this nation to give them the equipment, the capability, and the training to do the mission we ask them to do. And right now, in the environment we're operating in, it's a challenge. Again, that's Hawk Carlisle, the president of NDIA. Now, as Congress and White House and the White House finish the 2022 budget and begin the 2023 budget process, which, Tom, we know is going to come from the White House any, any day now, any, any week now, the Vital Signs Report also should act as a wake-up call. Tara Murphy-Dowdy, the CEO of Govini, who, who co-sponsored this Vital Signs report, says uh, DOD, Congress, the White House need to better understand just how challenging the current federal procurement environment has become over the last decade. We know as a national security community that the Department of Defense has to bridge the gap between the traditional members of the defense industrial base who today continue to contribute so much and the emerging national security innovation base. DOD has to attract the companies that are working on bleeding edge technology in the commercial sector of, of the United States economy. If we cannot accomplish that the techno-military challenge and competition that we're facing with China will continue to undoubtedly get more difficult. If you consider comparative investments between the United States and the Chinese Communist Party in these emerging technologies and the commitment that China has to leveraging those technologies for warfare, it's clear what DOD needs to do. That's uh, Tara Murphy-Dowdy, the CEO of Govini, who co-sponsored the Vital Signs Report. Tom, the, the, the main thing here going on is I think what NDIA wanted to do, what the DOD report's trying to do is really get Congress, get the White House thinking about what really needs to get done to address the near-peer competition and challenges that this entire defense industrial base is finding, and think about how to drive more competition and at the same time make it easier to get access to companies that are on the cutting edge and bleeding edge when it comes to certain technologies like AI, as you heard uh, Dowdy talk about. All right. So we know we have Russia as a near-peer. China, we don't know, but seems like more like the peer than Russia is at this point. Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Thanks so much. My pleasure, Tom. And be sure to check out his story with links to all of those reports at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. 
My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have 
ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at pluralsight.com vision. 
Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.